Hello, and welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast, where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Musia. Let's dive into today's episode. Hello, welcome to today's episode. I wanted to take a moment and say thank you to all of my listeners. I've been loving hearing from you guys. It's really been a lot of fun making this podcast. So thank you so much for listening and for reaching out and for all of your kind words. And I look forward to more. Today's episode is for anyone that wants to help the oceans, but may not want to go to university or study to become a marine biologist. While science is really important and is an important tool for understanding our natural world, there's more to conservation work than just studies. There are policies and politics, education, and of course, the human factor. Today's guest is Maddie Pip Stewart, a marine conservationist from Australia. To say Maddie loves sharks would be an understatement. Maddie met her first shark at age six and has been hooked since. She decided at a young age that she would be a marine biologist, but plans changed. Maddie has starred in several shark documentaries, starting at age 19 with Shark Girl, a film about shark fishing on the Great Barrier Reef and the high levels of mercury in shark meat. In the six years since the filming of Shark Girl, Maddie has continued to fight for sharks worldwide. In this episode, we chat about how people can make a difference, why marine biology wasn't the right course for her, and Shark Girl's favorite species of shark. The beginning of this recording did get cut off a bit, so we're diving right into Maddie's childhood growing up on a boat literally on the Great Barrier Reef. Here's Maddie. So I really grew up in that area and on the water there, so my earliest memories as a kid were from the Great Barrier Reef, so it's obviously a really special place to me, and I guess that helped shape my connection with the ocean. That makes perfect sense. So did you dive always, like from a young age, you were out snorkeling with your parents from the boat? Yeah, absolutely. I think my dad tells me the first time that I saw a shark, I was like six years old. That's incredible. Do you remember what kind of shark it was? It was a little reef shark. It was off um, one of the islands in the Great Barrier Reef. Oh, that's so cool. Did you mostly spend time offshore on the reef or were you kind of like in and out of anchor or moorings and anchorage and docking? We mostly spent time out on the reef. You went to school for a little bit, correct? I did, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so what did that look like? Were you still living on the sailboat and then you kind of just went to school during the day and then back on the boat at night? I love the way you said that. Um, (laughs) um, It feels like my grandma's talking to me. Like, can you at least go to university for a little bit? No, no, no. So um, actually, so I lived on the boat for a good while, but then we actually um, moved off and my dad, I ended up growing up with just my dad. We lived on the water on the Gold Coast in Australia. So we sold the yacht and we ended up with like a jet ski and a little boat living on the water so that I could go to school. So I went to school until about grade nine. And then my dad was like, you know what? I want you to see the world. I want to go scuba diving more. I'm going to pull you out of school. And instead of paying school fees, I'll pay for you to get an underwater housing for that camera that you really want. How does that sound? And me at the time, I think I was 14 years old, I was like, yeah, that sounds awesome. So I left school, started homeschooling, and then from the age of 14, just got more heavily involved in being in the ocean and filming and going back to the Great Barrier Reef. That's really amazing. I feel like not many parents would do that, and most most 14-year-olds would absolutely jump at that opportunity. That's Kudos to your dad. That's awesome. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because my dad's actually a university professor by profession. So 
he actually discouraged me from going to university, which is something I always wanted to do. Why did he do that? That's really interesting. My dad kind of lost faith in the schooling system. So he really just wanted to take me to go see things and do things and experience nature. And I think my dad really kind of ingrained a fear in me that things are actually dying and that we need to see them before they're gone. That, that was really important to him. And, and he actually, by the time he had finished his career in the education profession, I'm sorry, it's just started raining. I hope that's not too loud. What is that? Off. It's raining. Um, <laughs> it should clear up in a, in a second. Um, I think okay. by the time my dad finished with his career in university, he just kind of lost faith in the education system. He said that it was all about who could afford to go to university as opposed to who wanted to be there. Okay. I mean, that's very astute of him to observe, I guess. And kind of, <clears throat> he's his own renegade in his own right for pulling his 14-year-old daughter out of school and saying, let's go see the world instead. And you got yeah. a hands-on education. Absolutely. Did you immediately start photographing sharks? Was that like your first, you know, pull towards photography or was it other things in the ocean? For me, it's always been sharks. I've always loved sharks. They've always been my favorite. And I wanted to be able to show people the things that I was seeing. So they were the things that I, I wanted to film the most. And when I started, it was all about just taking beautiful images and videos and making cool videos. Um, none of it had anything to do with conservation when I first started. So what was your main point then? Just to show just to show off the beauty of what you're seeing? Yeah, I just wanted to look cool. I wanted to make okay. cool videos. I wanted to be like, yeah, I died with sharks. Look at this cool edit. I want to put some sick music to this sick footage and make a cool movie. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And then what changed? Yeah. I was actually 14 years old when it happened. Um, my dad and I went on a liveaboard expedition to the Great Barrier Reef. So you get on these dive boats and you stay on them for a week. And we were offshore on this reef that I had dived once before when I was 12. And I remember when I was 12, I got in the water on a night dive and there was like 40 gray reef sharks in the water. And everyone would jump in the water and go look at coral. And I would stay under the boat because the sharks would stay under the boat because they like the lights. And okay. I would do, I would play with them. So I would breathe really fast in my, in my scuba equipment and my heart rate would accelerate and the sharks would pick up on that. So they'd like run in to investigate, you know, and it was just like this beautiful interaction with these crazy wild animals. They were like my little pets. So I was really, really excited because I hadn't been there in two years to go back to this reef when I was 14. So I had my camera this time. I didn't have it last time. So I was like, yes, I'm going to get the sickest footage ever, right? Got in the water, same time of year, exact same spot. There were no sharks. And mm. I waited under the boat and I waited and I waited and I got up from the dive and I was like, what, what's happened? Um, and then I was speaking to the crew and then the crew were like, yeah, you know, things aren't what they used to be. I used to see this, this and this and now I don't see this. And, and it just hit me really suddenly that I'd always known bad things were happening to sharks around the world but I never thought that they were happening in my backyard, never thought they were happening in the Great Bay Reef. And that led me to look into what was going on and discovering that there are illegal shark fisheries in the Great Bay Reef and that sharks were being commercially harvested out of these areas. And whether or not that contributed to the lack of sharks on that night, I know that something did. And that was like a real game changer for me. And that, that kind of just set you off on your, on your shark path, on your shark girl yeah, path. Absolutely. That's really powerful. I could, and I'm sure that was really shocking, especially as a 
for two years, for things to change that dramatically in two years is quite startling and really disturbing. Absolutely. And the first thing that I got when I started conservation was people always saying to me, you're too young to know anything. You're too young to have seen a difference. But the fact that I was so young and had already seen that difference gave my cause more validity than any old person's because we're starting to see such a dramatic change in a short amount of time that as young people, we actually have the most power and the biggest say. It makes sense. You can literally shape the future and we can continue to do what we're doing or change things. Yeah. And so you have. Consequences. I tried. <laughs> you filmed Shark Girl when you were 19 or 20? 19, yeah. Okay. And Shark Girl is, we kind of learned about the Australian shark fishing um, and that Woolworths, a major grocery chain in Australia, was selling shark meat, uh, which is bad for numerous reasons. And kind of at the end of the film, you, you, you met up with Woolworths and you were trying to get them to stop selling shark meat from the Great Barrier Reef, mostly because, well, you don't want, people didn't realize that they were shark fishing in the Great Barrier Reef at all. And then sharks also have a high content of mercury. So it's also a people problem. Yes. So what ended up happening with that? So I ended up going and actually meeting with the head of Woolworths and um, talking to them about it and presenting my results to them. And, you know, they were kind of shocked, but of course nothing happened immediately. They're a big supermarket chain. They don't really care. And that was kind of my first introduction to the world and figuring out that change wasn't going to happen unless public pressure was part of it and people mm. won't just do the right things. And you have to actually question things as a consumer especially. So it was a really interesting kind of path and it led me to do a lot more investigating of shark meat and the biggest thing with campaigns like this is I never have like a goal. Obviously the goal was to get Woolworths to stop selling it. Mm. Uh, they eventually did. Whether or not that had anything to do with me, I don't know, but it can't, I can't find it on their shelves anymore. But the biggest That's goal great. for me, yeah, the biggest, the biggest thing and the happiest thing for me was just making people aware of it. And mm. now Australians everywhere are aware that shark meat is not only prevalent in our everyday lives, but is really bad for you and is being sourced from places like the Great Barrier Reef. So people knowing that and people being made aware of that was the biggest thing for me. It's a really good point. It, like Educating people is probably the most powerful thing that we could do, including educating ourselves. So that's wonderful that you were able to have that opportunity to do it. How did Shark Girl kind of come about? I mean, I've saw it here in the states um actually a funny story yeah so like as a kid that loved sharks i hated the media everything in australia is like shark attack and they're dangerous and they're scary and they're gonna eat you and i was like oh this is really frustrating because it's not what my babies are like and this production company in sydney reached out to me and they were like hi madison we've seen your work blah 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 um they were looking they were talking about little films that i had made and put on youtube and they were like we want to make a documentary about you and what you do. And, you know, as like an 18, I was 18 at the time, you're getting an offer to be on TV and have an hour long feature film made about you. Like, that's pretty cool, right? It's and straight incredible. Away I was, yeah, straight away, I emailed them back. I was like, no, I'm good. I don't <laughs> like, I don't like the way that media represents sharks. And I was like, thank you, but I'm not going to be part of that like getting all righteous about it and <laughs> and then they were like oh okay and they're like how about we just come meet with you so they flew from Sydney to where I live in the Gold Coast to come meet with me and talk to me about it 
And then they were like, this is what we want to do. And I realized that their intentions were actually to help sharks. And they listed all the places that they were going to take me <laughs> to film. And I was like, all right, it's starting to sound a little better. So I eventually yeah. agreed to it. But I was very cautious and nervous about it. But I agreed to it. And um, we started production of Shark Girl. And I actually took two years to make. And it was really incredible. It, it followed a journey of me doing real life stuff. And, you know, when it came to be released on TV, we got a lot of pushback because there's a lot of conservation in it and there's a lot of um, kind of topics that, that, that were controversial, like taking right. on Woolworths in Australia for a TV station to do that. And I'm not a scientist, so Smithsonian were very hesitant about doing anything with me because I didn't have that, that scientific background. So it was all a bit of a, a journey and a challenge, but eventually it became this amazing documentary. And it truly is. And you're happy with how it turned out. Yeah, I mean, I love it. I just, I do the things that are in it. And that's all that matters to me. And I think these days, a lot of people want to be in documentaries. Mm -hmm. And I think that the most authentic documentaries, you can't plan. They happen when someone's passionate about something and that something is, is being destroyed and then they fight against it. And that's, that's where the real magic comes from. So it was authentic. And for that reason, I love it. It is. It's, it's really wonderful, actually. I've Actually, I had seen it a couple years ago, and I rewatched it recently, and it's really good. <clears throat> it's Thank you. I love rewatching it because I just think to myself, "My God, I was a dorkiest kid. Like <laughs> nobody, nobody said, hey, Maddie, you should like wear makeup every now and then if you're going to be on camera, or you know, <laughs> stop wearing the exact same T-shirt every single day from the dive shop that you work at." <laughs> <Like> <laughs> Watching it now is like, oh my goodness, look at me, but whatever. <laughs> yeah, but it just makes it that more real. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You have a really great, great quote from Shark Girl. The ocean without sharks is like blood with no heartbeat. I think that was like super powerful and really appropriate. Where did that stem from? You know, there's no easy way to convince people of a shark's importance. And the sad thing is sharks are truly underdogs. They are the heroes of the oceans. They have so much effect on the ecosystem. And people just see them as mindless killers. And they're actually going around eating all the fish. And they're these terrible animals. And we can get rid of them. But they're not. And they do so much work to make sure that we have a beautiful ocean. And we treat them, like, really bad. So trying to convince people that this animal that they're scared of is actually really important is a challenge. So trying to put it in perspective that people can understand I think that's one of the hardest things that shark conservationists have to do. Absolutely. They kind of, you know, they do regulate the food chain. A lot of them are apex predators, so they kind of help balance out reefs. And even if they're not apex predators, they do add value to the food web. And it's devastating to see when people are just like, oh, we must kill them all. So yes. nice to light on that. You also do shark meat testing, um, which, again, I kind of touched on earlier, is more about more than just about sharks, it's kind of about human health because there's high levels of mercury in shark meat due to bioaccumulation, with, which is like all the sharks eat all the little things and, the, and all the toxins in the tissues of the little animals or the little fish that they're eating kind of accumulate in the shark's tissues and, and then you have high levels. Um, so yeah. what, where else have you tested? I saw you were in Florida. You're, you went to Publix and they had yeah. black I was shocked to see they have black tip sharks. Everyone was, yeah. And um, that another thing, just like Woolworths in Australia, that was the best thing was people in Florida being like, what? 
me being like, yeah, this, this is your backyard, you know? And I think that's the biggest thing with people getting involved in conservation. You don't have to fly to Mexico with me and find some dodgy shark fishery in the middle of nowhere and film it. Like, you can <laughs> find stuff to fight in your own backyard. There is a need for conservation literally everywhere in this modern world. So it was cool to, like, raise that point again. And, yeah, I took that. So I've now tested shark meat from Publix and Woolworths, and I've done two separate tests from Woolworths. And every single time there has been samples well over the legal and safe limit every single time without fail there's never been a time where i've done a mercury test and everything's been okay so it's safe to say that sharks are not good for human consumption um mm-hmm. public's public shark meat was the same it was well over the the safe level um and it's really really scary to think that people are going and eating that especially like the biggest group at risk is uh pregnant mothers you can mm-hmm. actually lose your baby or give your baby serious defects by eating shark meat while you're pregnant or even if you're about to become pregnant so it's really scary that it's still allowed to be sold to people it is scary in australia and is this still going on there's shark culling uh so the shark cull was something that happened in western australia for a certain period of time so that's not going on but we still have in place a shark control program or an scp as they like to call it so we still have baited hooks and nets that are permanently fixed off some of our beaches that are aimed at killing sharks okay so the call is the more actively going out and fishing for the sharks and then this 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 program is less essentially a permanent call it's a permanent call yeah it's one that's just it's been it's been here for more than 30 years it's been you know there's there's staff that that operate it that go and check these drum lines that these sharks get caught on Yes. So I, I watched your video that you did with Sea Shepherd and read your Obstruction is Justice article and thought that was really powerful and really kind of scary that th- that this is still happening. And have they still the, the impetus behind the call was that people were getting attacked by mostly great whites, correct? Yes. Yes. And how many great whites have they caught since they've started the call? They didn't catch a single one. So they started this shark cull because of the great white attacks and they caught several, several tiger sharks. And there hasn't been a recorded attack from a tiger shark on a human being in that area in over 80 years. So the cull was totally ineffective as we all knew that it would be. But at the same time, surfers were getting killed. So they had to do something. This is still happening. Is there anything that can be done at this point? Like it seems like I saw that there was an administration that came in in 20. 17 and stopped it for a little while but then it was reinstated in 2018 like what does it take to stop something like that australia is one of the most backwards countries when it comes to our involvement in the natural world we (laughs) interact with animals every single day that can kill us and we interact with sharks every single day but we are so disconnected from them Uh, i find the amount of respect that People in Florida, people in Hawaii have for animals like sharks, people, you know, in Alaska that have for animals like bears, far surpasses anything that Australians will have for our dangerous animals. So the government really enforces this idea of just killing them and ignoring the issue as opposed to actually addressing the issue. So my personal way of contributing to this was writing an article, which is like a 13-page document called The Surfing Guide to Sharks. Right? There's actually a website um, where you can go and read all about it called surfingguidetosharks.com and it's basically taking the responsibility into your own hands and knowing when it's safe and when it's not safe to go surfing 
And really addressing that protecting humans in the water from sharks is an important thing. But we need to stop letting the government rely on just revenge tactics and killing sharks in order to do that. And there's really nothing that can be done because when the shark call started, 80% of the population in Western Australia didn't want it. They all voted against it and it still went ahead. That's fascinating. So why, if 80% said no, then how did it still go ahead? It's not up to us. It was just Mm. the government needing to be seen to do something. I'm sure tourism had a factor. I know that tourism is a big part of the decisions of these kinds of things. So, Okay, that's a little disheartening. So I want to segue into protecting sharks. You've visited the Bahamas several times, and it's one of the few places in the world that sharks are 100% protected. And I saw in Shark Girl that Palau is another one that has recently become, you know, shark sharks are protected. Are there any other? Actually, the very first one. They were the very first country to do it, and they're this tiny little island in Micronesia, and they took that step, and it was the greatest thing they've ever done because they make millions and millions of dollars of tourism around their sharks. And that's just shark diving and kind of going out and seeing sharks. That's that's how they make all the money. That's incredible. So, are there any other places that are shark sanctuaries? Honduras, other areas in the Pacific, there are. There are quite a few countries that, that jumped on board and was like, hey, we'll become shark sanctuaries as well. So it essentially, it also, um, French Polynesia as well, like Tahiti, it also stops the trade of shark products. So that's a really, mm-hmm. really important thing as well. So as a sanctuary, there's no fishing, no culling, no no, no sale of fins or meat or anything like that. It's just completely a shark, shark truly set. a sanctuary. Yep, yeah. What about for the Great Barrier Reef? Is there a chance for that to happen? The Great Barrier Reef is too far gone. Give up on it. <laughs> it's it's so tragic for me to say that. Um, there is nowhere in the world that abuses its natural wonders like Australia, the Great Barrier Reef. Um, hmm. There are actually only, only 33% of the Great Barrier Reef is actually protected. And that area isn't even big enough to cover the home ranges of sharks there. There are over 120 commercial gillnet vessels with licenses to fish only sharks, and they operate in the marine park. So there's commercial shark fisheries occurring in the Great Barrier Reef. Wow. Yeah. That's things that you would not think of. You, when I think of Great Barrier Reef, I just assume the whole thing is protected, which I understand exactly. it's enormous. But. And it's like, why wouldn't we protect it? It's one of the greatest things that Australia has to offer the world. But commercial industries and that greed and that demand has really... Um, I don't know. There's a need to question things. Even I thought it was protected. And then that's when right. I started looking into that fishery and I was like, wow, this is happening. So you have done, you've taken your own action. In addition to Shark Girl, you have started other projects. So what other projects are you working on? My goodness. Um, <laughs> so I made another documentary. I was in another documentary called Blue, which was really a lot of fun. And Blue okay. took me to this place in Indonesia where fishermen were fishing lots of sharks. So recently I started a project called Project Hiu where I actually go to this fishing village and I'm hiring fishermen and using their boats to tourism, which stops them from fishing sharks and gives them the chance to make even more money. So Project Hiu is definitely something I wanted to touch on or talk about a lot about actually, not just touch on. So how you walked in this village and there's a shark trade, shark industry. Like how did you come up with the idea that I'm going to go back and we're going to turn this around? I do random stuff like this all the time, and I think I would love, I'd love your listeners to, to pay very close attention to what I'm about to say. The most amazing things I have ever ch- achieved in conservation have been 
totally winging it. <laughs> and this is one of those things. I never thought that it would amount to what it is today. But I was taken to this fish market where they land these sharks and cut their fins off so many times by film crews. Like, we want to film you here. And eventually I was just like, what am I doing? We're not changing anything. I'm just being flown here to film it. So I was like, mm -hmm. I'm going to apply for a grant and I'm going to get some money and I'm going to basically go back and try and talk to these fishermen and see if they'd be interested in tourism. You know, that's like a really crazy thing to do, going to a foreign country and just approaching some random that barely speaks English that's never seen a tourist before and asking if they'd be willing to let you use their boat. Yes, that's absolutely huge. It's why I was blown away that you did that. It's very tenacious and wonderful that you, you almost well, had the audacity to do it and it, and it worked. I, yeah, and then, you know, I had help. I had a team of people with me um, and they all were part of it as well. Um, my good friend, Mark, who is Chinese, he helped a lot because Chinese people are renowned in that area for being tourists and having lots of money. So I'm sure that he was like a wonderful walking dollar sign for for me to bring it to the market, I'm sure that helped a lot. It was really amazing. And I think that we have this stigma around these people killing sharks that they hate sharks and they hate the ocean and they're really evil people. You know what? At the end of the day, these are all men that ended up fishing sharks because they wanted to feed their families and he wanted to buy his daughter the right amount of pencils because she loves to color and draw. So any opportunity to make better money, they were happy to take it. You know, fishing sharks was not their passion. It was their necessity. So the friendship that I formed with that one shark fisherman has now amounted to me being able to hire four boats and take tourists to this area. That's awesome. So how much were these fishermen making before? When they were fishing sharks, how much were they making? They, okay, so the captain of the boat on average. So they do a good day or, well, not, or they go out for two weeks. And in that two weeks, they can either do really good or really bad. Um, on a really good day, and a really bad day, it's very different how much they can make. So I, I did it by average. On an average fishing trip, which is two weeks at sea, the captain makes 150 Australian dollars. And that's now what I pay them a day. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And how often are you able to do these trips? Not often enough. So this is still a developing part of Project U, is concentrating these trips around heavy star fishing seasons and seeing what other kind of avenues for uses for their boats we have. So right now, it seems to be going really well where I bring tourists for a week and because I pay them so much, I tell them I'm going to be there, but I don't tell them when. So I keep the boats from fishing sharks for that whole month and then they're getting enough money to sustain them for that time. So when I can run my trips and all of this relies on people booking onto my trips, like I wouldn't be able to do it without them, then, th then that's when I can take them out of the water. So still when I'm gone, when I'm not around, when I can't take trips, they'll be fishing sharks again. That's something that I am not planning to stop or avoid just yet because I can't bring them enough income. But we have certainly dented the trade. And more than anything, we're introducing a mentality to these men that this is an alternative occupation that they can potentially be involved in. And they're really enjoying it, seeing the benefits of tourism over fishing. That's fantastic. Yeah. So nice to hear that conservation efforts can, can work. And you kind of have a guerrilla tactic to it, and I really like it. Thank you. Yes, there's, there's a lot of... Um, I say controversial stuff <laughs> that I do it's weird I don't know if you've seen my project with Mark the shark either like this world infamous shark hunter that's killed hundreds of thousands of sharks and just like, like everybody knows him everybody hates him and I went up to him one day when I was stuck in Miami because a film shoot got cancelled and I was like hey can I come on your boat and film 
and told him exactly who I was. And we've been good friends ever since. And he's meant to be my number one enemy. But by being his friend, I've been able to be a part of his work and really document his stuff. And it's, it's been really incredible. But yeah, just, just be nice to people. Just be honest, be nice and be authentic and have the right motivations. And that'll get you everywhere. Yes. I think that's a really good lesson to learn because I think a lot of people kind of get closed-minded and shut people down. And really, if you approach the world with an open mind, it's amazing what you can accomplish. It's just like the conservation world is full of so much hate. Mm-hmm. And I would like okay. to see that change. You're right. Absolutely. They love something so much that they hate anything that could possibly damage it. Which is why, like, when I was a kid, I would say in my films, you know, don't fight because you hate the people destroying things fight because you love what they're destroying and as long as you do it for that motivation you'll never fail where did the name project hugh come from i just made it up really quickly because i needed a name (laughs) hugh is the indonesian word for shark so it's just project Shark. kind of figured that had to have been it but i had to ask (laughs) yeah you initially wrote a grant and that's how you got funding for your project hugh how else are you funding what you do people coming on trips so the only way that i can afford to go back hire these boats and keep helping the community is people signing up to my trips And recently I got help making merchandise for the first time. So I've started selling these cool little bracelets and that's making a big, big difference as well. I actually purchased the bracelet. I'm really excited. (laughs) Oh, yay. Thank you. Of course. What other projects are you working on or is Project Hugh just kind of your end all be all right now? No, I'm working on other stuff. Um, I was following shark fishing tournaments around America, trying to film them um, and kind of raise awareness about that. I have more work I want to do with Mark the Shark. Um, I want to uh, track this um, shark fin industry in Indonesia all the way to the final stage and the customers in Hong Kong. And the other thing I'm doing, which is my main focus right now, is I'm actually making a film about animal agriculture contributing to shark attacks. So runoff from things like slaughterhouses and things where animals are getting bred in farms near the ocean, um, creating basically organic chum, which is leading sharks to come closer to shore that's a really fascinating concept and i have not heard that before where where are you primarily targeting um so i'm i'm focusing on three different examples uh, okay one in sydney so like a 50 percent of the sh- shark attack fatalities that have occurred in new south wales all occurred while a certain abattoir was open in the sydney harbor and they occurred in that area so i'm focusing on that story that was in the past. That was like 1900s. And then I'm focusing on um, the Red Sea. And then I'm focusing on Western Australia. And all those places are places that have had evidence of animal agriculture contributing to an increased presence of sharks and then people getting attacked because of that. How did you come up with that? I was, how did I come up with that? Uh, actually, Humane Society International released a paper a while ago. And they okay. suggested a link between shark attacks and live export ships so ships that carry animals while still alive to other countries for slaughter and i looked into that and i was like wow and then all these attacks were happening and people people talk to me a lot about shark attacks and i try and help surfers as much as i can so it became this thing where i was like what if this is a contributing factor and then i started to look into it and i was like my gosh it is so i'm really excited and hopefully can do a bit more fundraising to be able to finish this film and make this link and show everybody that this could be a potential thing causing an increased presence of sharks. That's amazing. And yeah. I'm really curious to see what your findings are. So how do you 
how do you primarily fundraise for your film? I think there's a lot of people out there that are interested in conservation and want to be able to promote what they're doing, but may not have the funds to do it. Yeah, so like a lot of people that don't have the funds to do it, they usually are really skilled at finding a way to do something to get funds, like a screening mm -hmm. or a fundraiser. And if people do that, it's just so heartwarming. It's really amazing. Um, I recently got a nonprofit, so I don't have to use GoFundMe anymore, which is great. <laughs> so I have a nonprofit based in America, so we can take donations on board, and that all goes 100% back into helping sharks. So that's been my biggest avenue. Linking up with brands and people that want to help, that's, that's great. All that stuff helps. That's fantastic. And what's the name of your nonprofit? The Hooper Collective. The what collective? The Hooper Collective. So Hooper. Okay. Hooper after Matt Hooper, one of the characters from the movie Jaws. <laughs> I know, I'm a little weird. So Matt Hooper was the scientist in Jaws. He was the one guy that didn't want them to kill the sharks. So I named my nonprofit the Hooper Collective because I want more people to be like Hooper. That's great. You know, that makes yeah. perfect sense. That's so funny that you love Jaws. Mm-hmm. Everybody's wigged out by it. Everybody's like, but it was so bad for sharks and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah, but Jaws was a powerful film and I want to make powerful films. So it's a great mm. example. It's a yeah. valid point. Absolutely. Do you have a favorite field story or stories to tell? Like your favorite <laughs> day out, out, out with sharks? There's a lot. There was one time where I was diving group in Byron Bay and I saw my first great white. That was pretty cool. It just swam past me. How many have you seen? Great whites, like five. Yeah, I'm very, very lucky to have seen them. Unfortunately, I spent my whole childhood with sharks, but now I'd only get to see dead ones, so I don't have any good stories anymore. Oh. I'm working on it. Yeah, you gotta, you gotta get out in the water and try to see some live ones. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. I just turned this into a depressing podcast, but <laughs> I'm <laughs> I think it's a, the other side of the coin. You don't get to go and do all the pretty things all the time. You have to kind of get dirty to make make the difference and make the change. So a lot of people see my Instagram and they're like, "If this is saving sharks, I'd love to do this for a job." And I'm like, "Uh huh, you don't you, you don't get it. <laughs> it's rarely that. I don't remember the last time I got to be in the water with sharks. Actually, somebody listening, take me diving with sharks. <laughs> Aren't you close to the ocean where you are? I am, but not, not to sharks. Um, Australia is kind of a difficult place to go see sharks, and it costs money. And right now I'm spending all my money on trying to help them, which is great. I'm hoping it'll pay off one day, but uh, yeah. I, I have confidence that it will. So what specifically are you looking for? The oceanic, like white tips, or, I mean, that would be difficult. Like a reef shark? I want to see tigers again. They're my favorite. Oh. And I want to see wild sharks. So, like, when I was a kid, I had a lot of interactions with sharks that weren't planned. And I'd love to do that again. And now we go places and we chum for sharks, so we try and bait them in with food, whereas we used to just see them on our own. But that's becoming more rare. So You just kind of answered one of my favorite questions to ask. One of my favorite questions to ask is, what is your favorite animal in, a, in the ocean? And I feel like I know this answer. Um, so what is your favorite species of shark? And I think you just said it. Tiger shark. <laughs> Why do you love them so much? Because they're really dopey they're dopey how are they dopey they're they're really funny i really like them they have personalities and i think that that's the most important thing about sharks yes so how yeah so give me an example why why are they so dopey or or have such personalities um i've seen them like hit their heads on rocks i've seen <laughs> them 
try and try and ambush things and then you make eye contact with them and they're like oh damn it and then they go back and try again they're just <laughs> funny they're funny to watch they're also beautiful they're powerful they're tiger sharks i think more than any other shark when it looks you in the eye you can tell that there's something there and i think that i think it's just the eye contact with tiger sharks that for me is different to every other species a couple more questions or maybe one final question do you have any advice for people that want to help save the oceans or specifically help save sharks or any advice that they should ignore uh yes ignore the advice ignore people saying that you need a degree you need to do this you need to do that basically the only thing you need to do is be passionate about it and do it for the right reasons uh it's great to go get a degree if you want to do that um but you don't need to be a marine biologist to make a difference uh it depends on what your skills are for me it was filmmaking but if i wanted to contribute to science then i would need a marine biology degree so it just depends on what your skills are what you're passionate about and following that and I think the biggest piece of advice I can give is that social media is is definitely changing conservation and I think it's giving like a false impression of what conservation should be. So try and steer away from that and just do things for the right reasons. Your motivation for doing things is going to be the most important part of what you do. And a few years ago if someone said one person can make a difference, I would have laughed at them and thought no we can't. But we really can. And whether or not you make a huge difference it doesn't matter you'll start to see the effect that you make when you just start trying that's really good advice i kind of want to dive a little bit further into what you mentioned about social media and conservation that it's not what you what it really is could you kind yeah. of laugh the thing is when my instagram's going really good i'm not really doing much for conservation and when my mm. doing lots for conservation my instagram's not going really good one of the most effective things i have ever done in my like conservation career has been picking apart the fisheries on the great barrier reef learning as much about them as i could so i could develop strong arguments against them there's not a mm. single photograph that could look cool doing that on instagram so i think no. that people need to keep in mind that it's very different and you need to question things. You need to look at someone and be like, are you actually making a difference or are you just posting pretty pictures? And I'm really, really lucky to have had a partner who takes amazing photos, but if it wasn't for him, I probably wouldn't have any following. So it's, <laughs> it's and he says to me all the time, he says, you know, you're the only like popular conservationist posting graphic images of dead sharks. Like nobody else is kind of doing it or focusing on it. Honestly, it's all about starting somewhere, and I've been doing this since I was 14. I ended up washing the dishes of a filmmaker in my hometown so he would teach me about cameras. There is a lot to do and a long way to go and a lot to learn and a lot of sacrifices to make before you can get to the level that I'm at now where I can ask the public for donations and I can do these things. So I'm super lucky to be here, but it definitely takes a lot. Excellent advice and really great points. Is there any other things you want to ask of the audience or tell the audience before we kind of sign off? I want to tell the audience that the way that things are going on the planet is really quite drastic. Um, we're seeing a huge shift in mindsets of people, but we're also losing our environment. And um, it's, it's really scary. And I think that we need to take it super serious and we need to do as much as we can, legal or not. And I think that the most important occupation that we can have is protecting our natural world. That's the most important thing that we can do. So, yeah, I guess that's my only advice is that's, look at the severity of it. 
It's great advice. Well, thank you so much for what you do, Maddie. This is awesome. Thank you. Hey, listeners. I hope you found today's episode enlightening. Now I have a challenge for you. Maddie has a unique perspective on the conservation world, and she's making bold moves and changing lives as a result. What's one thing you could be a little more bold with in your own life? It doesn't have to take flying across the world and filming a documentary. Does your local grocer sell shark meat? If so, consider writing to them, voicing your concerns about the health of our oceans and human health, and ask if they'll stop selling it. Most companies take their customers' comments very seriously. If you'd like to support Maddie's amazing work, there's a link in the show notes for her Project Hue website. You can make a donation or purchase your own sweet shark fin bracelet or simply share her work. Every bit helps. Thank you so much for listening, y'all. Until next time. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed it, I'd love to hear from you. Leave a comment under the show notes at marinebio.life or send me an email at hello at marinebio.life. We'll catch you next time on So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist.